Good evening and welcome to the Corbett Report. I'm your interim host, Richard Grove, and I'm sitting in for James tonight and for the next two Fridays. We're broadcasting from the Tragedy and Hope studios here in Connecticut. Thank you for tuning in to RBN. We've got some fascinating information planned for you this evening in disclosure style over this audio metaphor. Tonight, I'm assisted by Tony Myers, and on the line, we've got our special guest, Brett Vinat of the School Sucks podcast. Recently, of the School Sucks live show, which is very exciting. Brett, welcome to Corbett Report Radio. How are you doing tonight? Good, Rich. Good to be with you. And Tony. <laughs> right on. Well, we wanted to invite you on because I think your recent trilogy titled The American Way would be of the utmost interest to everyone who listens to Corbett Report Radio and RBN, for that matter. How uh, how would you start this out? I mean, we don't have uh, five hours to, to really dip into it. So I guess my first question would be, what gave you this inspiration? What you know? What inspired you to create the short video that led into this extended audio uh, report and briefing on this uh, the last two centuries, really in depth of our history? Well, I think that certainly in the last decade, and it seems to be accelerating almost exponentially. I think you could say uh, over the course of the last few years, we see uh, some very some very frightening things happening in this country with respect to people not not necessarily the move towards a police state, but people's acceptance of it. And what's really scary is a lot of people even asking for it. And, you know, somebody made up a rule, I think, in the early 1990s that if you are having a debate or a discussion about anything that's political or historical and you bring up the Nazis, you automatically lose. And maybe in 1991, that made sense when America was still, you know, moving this way, but not as much as it is today, not where it was today. It might have seemed a little more silly to bring up the Nazis into a political discussion about something in America, but I think uh, that rule doesn't apply anymore. And the video called The American Way actually looks at the rise of, uh, well, initially socialism, which led to a very dependent society, and this was through the welfare state and the, the schooling system in Germany in the 19th century, and how some events and some crises during the early decades of the 20th century moved Germany towards uh, fascism and how a lot of people, not all people, but a lot of people applauded it every step of the way, in a nutshell. How would you define fascism? Uh, well, fascism is usually... I, I think totalitarianism is, is, is a better word because fascism uh, implies that the um, corporate uh, structure essentially merges with the government. And my understanding of how it worked in Nazi Germany uh, was more, um, their roots were more socialist. So we usually define fascism as this state corporate merger like we saw about that same time in Italy. And a lot of things that, that Hitler actually did were modeled after um uh, uh, Mussolini. Mussolini, yeah. That's the name I'm thinking of. But not exactly. Mussolini, who, they, they hung Mussolini eventually by his heels, did they not? Oh, yeah, very awful video. <laughs> it's, not, it's, never, it's not pleasant to watch anybody, uh, you know, meet their doom like that. 
it's, it's, I wasn't it's even aware there quality. was a video. That's why that's why I kind of chuckled. I was like, Gee, you know, everything's on YouTube these days. Even Mussolini getting yeah, hung by his heels. It's, apparently, it's much yeah. worse. Even just being hung by the heels, but yeah, yeah, not a good quality video, fortunately, but very well, grim. And you wouldn't think an idea like fascism would persist through the rest of the 20th century into the 21st century, but when we come back from this break, we're going to learn about its roots, origins, cause and effect, and how it's really bringing it together in the 21st century and what we can do about it. So, thank you, Brett. Thank you, everyone, for listening, and we'll be right back. Back to Forever Report Radio. I'm your host, Richard Grove, sitting in for James. We're talking with Brett Vinat of the School Sucks podcast and the story of how Prussia eventually became Germany and how the 20th century American culture was really modeled on 19th century German culture. Uh, this is coming from Brett's fantastic trilogy in his podcast, episodes 134 through 136, The American Way. Brett. Continue where you left off, explaining how fascism came to be, uh, you know, up to uh, Mussolini, and then by the end of the episode, hopefully, how it affects us and what we can do about us uh, in the 21st century. Sure. Well, we can start all the way back in uh, the beginning of the 1800s, where uh, a school system is devised by Prussian intellectuals, and you know, some of them are pretty clear about what they want to do and why people like Johann Gottlieb uh, Fichte or Fichte, I think both pronunciations are acceptable. Um, you know, talking about the the purpose of these schools is to make the pupil uh, unable to will uh, otherwise uh, from what his schoolmaster wishes him to will, or his. I guess you you could take out school after somebody grows up and it can just be master uh, wishes him to will but uh, the series of shows kind of progresses um, through the 1800s and right up to the late 1930s and we start looking at the philosophy that was so uh, prevalent in central I don't want to just call it German culture but central European culture uh, at that time and this is often referred to as uh, well German idealism and uh, this is where a lot of ideas that would be very familiar to people today as far as, uh, you know, nationalism, collectivism, the virtue of self-sacrifice, all seem to grow out of the thinking of 19th century German philosophers and intellectuals. But eventually, I thought it was also worth exploring this, this deep religious history uh, of of Central Europe, particularly the Holy Roman Empire, which um, started sometime I think in the around the year 900 and goes right up until about 1800, and traps Central and Eastern Europe, uh, or, or kind of keeps them out of the Enlightenment. The Enlightenment doesn't happen there because of the religious dogma in their society, and that's one of the things that allows this kind of mystical thinking to develop over the, uh, the 1800s. And the Nazis, you know, a lot of people don't know this, but the Nazis were real 
mystics. That continued right up into the 1940s. Well, by mystics, you're, you're, you're observing that they were not using observation, identification, organization in their communication. They were using some sort of prepackaged dogma, which uh, was not based on objective reality. It was based on subjective observations and, and cult-like mentality. And to bring it full circle for the audience, what Brett is describing is the, the, ex the expiration, the fall of the, the Roman Empire and it goes extinct for four or five, you know, three or four hundred years. And then Charlemagne, uh, who, you know, is, is, uh, a character who is enigmatic in many ways. He brings in the, the classical liberal arts, uh, the, the rudiments of compulsory education in Europe. All these things originate with Charlemagne. And he does a deal with the Pope, uh, and says, Hey, uh, how about we call ourselves the Holy Roman Empire? Bring back this, this past marketing of the Roman Empire. In, a, in this new form, and uh, he becomes the first Holy Roman Emperor. And so that legacy, all the way up through the present day, still is in effect. And the cause and effect that you described in, in the three-part series, particularly part three, I thought was just, you know, such a fascinating crescendo to the, the, the five-hour journey that you're taking us on. And so describe a little bit how it evolves from Charlemagne up through what becomes uh, Prussia and Germany. Well, it's interesting, too, because they believed that I think a lot of people at that time when the uh, Holy Roman Empire began, they believed that it, there was some kind of duty to uh, continue uh, biblical prophecy, that the, the, the Roman Empire was this great, I don't know if they thought it was the last empire or the third empire, I'm not sure of some of the details, but it was, it was absolutely necessary that it continue indefinitely. So uh, to some extent, the, the Russians thought that they were carrying it on in the east, and what eventually becomes the Holy Roman Empire is the, uh, the empire continuing in the west. And of course, even though the Roman Empire proper ended, I think, in the year... 476 AD, it does, the Eastern Empire drags on um, a little bit longer than that, maybe a couple of centuries beyond and, that. And it seems like, you know, through human history, there's only been one war that's gone on. It's the war to suppress consciousness waged against those who seek to express consciousness. What you see, whether it's the history of empire or the history of education, when we study it back to its roots, is it is the history of crowd control. It's the history of the few learning how to manipulate the many in the last 2,000 years, using words and sophisticated rhetoric to take away people's rights. And this idea that you're bringing up of the, quote-unquote, transfer of rule, the biblical source of authority, even though it has questionable authorship, uh, is an interesting one because it, again, persists to this day. And it is like uh, the Nazi uh, mysticism insofar as it lacks the objective reason that people need to communicate without falling into frustration, aggression, violence, and all the things that are used to divide and conquer us. Yeah, and the argument from authority is very powerful, and of course, like you said, you can see that right up into to the Nazis. But in addition to the mysticism, if people you know, are only reason it's not reasoning, but if they're only relying upon the argument from authority, the authorities can just uh, you know, change whatever the, whatever the rules are at any given time for their convenience. So obviously you see that with uh, the church going back centuries and centuries and centuries. But 
that was uh, that was Hitler's game as well. You know, Hitler started talking when he first rose to power. Um, even though you have things like nationalism and national identity and German unity kind of embedded into it the whole time, you know, Hitler is talking about um, eventually when things start to get, um, you know, more visible as far as what the Nazis were all about, the top virtue for the society just changes. You know, it just becomes loyalty. So now right. the the number one virtue in society is loyalty to Hitler, you know, and that's and, and being loyal to Hitler means being loyal to Germany because, uh, as you heard maybe in one of the clips of the show, they're they're introducing Hitler for a speech and they say the party is Hitler and Hitler is Germany. So there well, you have the. Go ahead, Tony. Well, I was going to say, Brad, you actually have a great segue in uh, your third part where you're going from that interview where they're saying. Uh, atheists uh, are the ones that cause all these great destructions, but in fact, what you see is this great mystical trend among the Nazis, and then actually there's a greater philosophical context from going back, well, well you're just explaining the Holy Roman Empire, but how they needed to hold on to this mystical connotation of this, uh, uh, you know, authority above you, whether it's a god or whether it's the king or whether it's the pope, it doesn't matter. And, you know, that leads up to Immanuel Kant. And what he did was essentially with all these a priori truths and this idea that uh, reason isn't good enough or it, it can never be uh, substantial enough to come to uh, a truth about the world. So therefore, there might be something beyond reason, uh, something of yeah. this great metaphysical. I mean, that can lead to atheism as well, but also gave the church great justification in its own conclusions, which, you know, get, that's in the 17th century, which leads up then. And some of the students like Fichte, which, which you just mentioned, you know, went on to go and establish much taking that philosophy, developing much of his own, establishing, you know, education in other areas. So it's interesting to see this continuity. And yet there is this idea of uh, mysticism, whether or not uh, you want to mask it in atheism, it's still this belief, this belief in authority. And that's the underlying, you know, the underpinning uh, message trying to be portrayed here. And you did a sure. fantastic and job at that part. Thank you. And, you know, one of the, the uh, frequent critiques of Kant is that it was, uh, part of his mission to justify uh, the religious dogma, which is why he ha he leaves this door open. I mean, if you if you buy into that critique, it's why he leaves this door open to this great beyond that can't be understood. Don't even bother, you know, trying to apply reason and empiricism to this because you won't get it. Well, you can't use reason to debunk reason, and that is that's a fallacy of the stolen concept. That's what that fallacy is called. So you can't debunk logic or try to prove that logic isn't uh, isn't doesn't exist because you would be using logic to disprove logic. And I understand, like some a lot of what these uh, skeptics said at this time, it, it, it's interesting. You know, I, I can't say all of it is at face value corrupt, but you know the way it's been usurped and utilized by uh, other philosophers and other trends to create these social systems, you know, the pragmatists later on and so forth and so on. You can think of so many different philosophies that emerged to create these systems of control that essentially came from these corruptions in, you know, the metaphysical realms and these realms of like, how do we obtain knowledge and how do we know truth? These very simple concepts that people have been arguing for since, uh, well, beginning of civilization, I guess, in language, <laughs> but. And it seems like pragmatism tries to ground it back down a little bit to, um, well, let's, you know, let's make stuff up as we go, but in the end, let's um, agree that it needs to achieve some kind of goal. That Brad, have you ever heard of something called real, real Politic by Otto von uh, Bismarck? 
Uh, yes. Sure. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Because I, I was reading about that actually a little bit today, or at least it seems like the kind of underpinnings of the beginnings of uh, the, you know, the idea of pragmatism, which was later, you know, formulated. But you know, he he kind of had this idea that you know what it's really a might makes right mentality, and essentially, you know, that well, it's labeled all over. Essentially, what happened then, leading in the well, that's the whole principle behind libertarianism is non-aggression. And that comes from observing that existence exists and cause and effect exists, and we're all subject to it. You can't think that out of the way. And the the difference between a philosopher, someone who's seeking truth, and a sophist is the sophist is willing to say anything to just prove their point. They're not interested in truth. We'll cover more about truth and how to find it after this break. You're listening to Corbett Report Radio on RBN. Welcome back to Corbett Report Radio. I'm your host, Richard Grove. I'm here in studio with Tony Myers, and we are on the Skype line with Brett Venon of the School Sox Podcast. And we're going to go to Chris in Las Vegas, who has a, uh, a question. Go ahead, Chris. I do, and thanks for taking my call this evening, gentlemen. Your topic is most uh, interesting to me, as I have done quite a bit of research on this and discovered several who posit that your Charlemagne you speak of was one that is known for changing his name as a matter of doing business on a regular basis, as the Canaanites do and the Ashkenazi. One, Flavius Augustus Constantinus, formerly known as Constantine, later Constantine the Great, who, after he moved out of Roma to his new diggings, uh, was then referred to as Charlemagne. And being that he is the one who conventicled the black cult of the Yahudi priest to uh, assemble in the Council of Nicaea to concoct the version of scriptures with their special interpretations to their agenda called the Bible, uh, it is certainly without con some consideration, at least, for the prudent to examine that relationship and uh, the allegations that maybe it's all a line of cock and bull. Well, that is a fascinating inquiry and a line of thought, Chris. Uh, you're touching on Arthur Kessler's 13th tribe. You're touching on the 325 A.D. Council in Nicaea. Brett, do you, do you have any comments on uh, on Chris's observations? Uh, no, a lot of that information is, is certainly new to me. I think that uh, most people are familiar with the, the Council of Nicaea. If anybody isn't, that was uh, in, in a very small nutshell, essentially where a group of people got together and decided what the tenets of what is today Christianity would be. Am I correct? Well, yeah, really yeah, I, would, I would agree with that, except that it wasn't just a group of people. It was a special group of people. It was the high Yehudi priest of the second temple of Saul Amman, who were the sun god man-worshipping cults that were the mystery religions of the East that were the Talmudists who absolutely concocted the scheme of the Holy Roman Christos Universal synagogue of Satan Church that we know today as the Catholic Church, which has been proven by the location of the Vatican on Vaticanus Mons, a.k.a. Vatican Hill, where recent excavations have exposed the pagan Moloch and other uh, 
sacrificial pagan cults that were worshipped there, just as Flavius Augustus Constantina's arch is decorated with pagan symbology at the top of the arch. Well, you certainly have done your homework on, on the mystery schools, Chris, and there is veracity to many of the points you're making. Uh, might I ask, do you have a specific literary reference that you can offer to the audience? Mine would be, uh, to start off with, the, the, the Barnes & Noble level would be something like Constantine's Sword by James Carroll, and then if you wanted to move to an advanced level, there are books like Astrotheology and Shamanism by Jan Irvin, and there are several other uh, sources found in his podcast, the, the Gnostic Media Podcast. What would be your source, Chris? Well, I've mainly done multiple researches from multiple sources. Uh, many common writers, like you say, Arthur Kostler is a great one, uh, Finkelstein. Of course, if one researches and actually reads the Talmud or the Kabbalah, Kabbalah would be the assembly of the worshippers of God, Baal, uh, it actually testifies to the deviant and depraved sexual nature and the absolute ludicrousness of the postulations as some form of uh, righteous worship as to one of mere pagan uh, worship in lieu and postulated as having connotes of right. And they, they claim that they're the chosen of God, but they never tell you which God chose them in fact. Well, obviously there's some questions over veracity over anything that's claimed to be uh, created by God, and yet it's a book which is created by the arm of man. That's that's not nature. That's a, that's an artificial creation of man. So uh, the lines of uh, inquiry that you're bringing to light here, uh, the first-time listener to this uh, podcast, uh, if you happen to be just cruising around the Internet and found this, you might think, wow, this is far out. But it actually has to do with the origins and histories of money, of empire, and in of humanity in general, because we are in a struggle right now for cognitive liberty, and that is the only struggle that has really ever gone on, uh, you know, as far as we have recorded history. So, Chris, I want to thank you for your call, and uh, I think there's a lot to that because Brett's uh, conversation uh, in the American way deals heavily with. Uh, it's a, it's an inquiry into what are the origins of this mysticism taken on by the Nazis and how are some of these most atrocious acts in human history, how are these created so we can learn from history and prevent it from repeating? I mean, you have to learn history so it doesn't repeat. So, Brett, going back into the mysticism of the Nazis, you got us up to uh, the, the 18th and 19th century. You were just about maybe to touch on the Prussian nationalism, unification, and how Hegel has uh, come to contribute to history in some infamous ways? Sure. Probably the most well-known would be the dialectic. Oh, first, just to uh, go back to what the caller said, um, I think even anybody with a cursory, now I, I don't know much about what he was talking about, but anybody even with a cursory uh, knowledge of you know Christian symbolism has to recognize that there is a lot of very bizarre things going on there and, and uh, rituals um, that uh, I, I think people just kind of dismiss as not understanding but also not really looking at where they came from. You're listening to Corbett Report Radio. We'll be right back and continue that thought. You're listening to the Republic Broadcasting Network because you can handle the truth.
Gilbert Report Radio, where reality is shattering illusion with Brett Benaud, our special guest tonight from the School Sucks podcast. Brett, we were just getting into this interesting character named Georg Wilhelm Friedrich Hegel. Is that how you say his name? Oh, your mic might be on mute. This is a professional show. <laughs> Hegel's influence on uh, Prussian history and later German history under Otto von Bismarck uh, is remarkable. And the idea of Prussian nationalism comes about in the early 1800s. And what you have, until we get uh, Brett back live, is uh, the short history of Prussia up to unification. <laughs> Well, I mean, until Brett arrives, I mean, the idea behind Hegel that everyone's familiar with is this problem-reaction-solution. I don't know uh, who made popular that term. It's been thrown around many times. But the idea, he, the, his terms or the terms that were come actually up, yeah, said Fichte the problem. was or Spinoza, Fichte. Yeah, but either way, the synthesis, uh, anti... Or, yeah. Well, let's break it down and make it yeah. real for the audience. What is it? They're taking something that exists, that's reality, and that's not good enough for them. So they're acting like little children, little immature children, and they're saying, hey, this other thing is going on. It's like having a kid, you know, you're having a, you, it's like your child cutting their shoes and saying, hey, my shoes are failing, let's take the shoes back. It's a, it's a dishonest thing to do to get what you want. It's irrational. It's the absence of logic. And that's why it's something that children do and that adults shouldn't do. And adults who do do it definitely shouldn't be in positions of power making decisions on behalf of other people, and they definitely shouldn't be wielding force, fraud, aggression, and coercion as their methods of convincing people. I think that logic and reason and non-aggression and non-violence all have its place, but there's it's nowhere to be found in the education system, and this comes out of Prussia. What happens is, in 1806, the Prussian army, who had made its history on being a professional army, and uh, fighting its way to getting what it wants, uh, comes up against this guy named uh, Napoleon. Now, this is at the Battle of Jena. It's spelled J-E-N-A, but it's pronounced Jena, to my recollection. And at this battle, the amateur army of Napoleon routs the Prussian forces. And basically what you have is a bunch of logical, reasonable people are getting shot at on the battlefield, and they haven't been thoroughly convinced by their government. Nationalism doesn't really exist yet, and so they're doing the logical thing. They're running away, and, and they're not seeking to kill another person. Well, the Prussian government finds uh, you know some problems with this, and so they get one of their best, uh, how do you say, people who know how to fight war, war strategists, this guy named Clausewitz, and he's influenced by the philosophy of Immanuel Kant as well. That's right. Yep. And uh, he wrote the book On War, I believe, or at least it was an essay. <laughs> it was definitely called On War. I think it was printed around 1812. So six years after the Battle of Jena, they're coming out with this military strategy. And when you read On War, uh, first off, I was disappointed because at the end, he misses the point that in order to stop war, you have to take away your enemy's will to fight. And oh, he, he says everything except that, but that's the real point. In order to stop well, war, you have to take away your enemy's will to fight. And I would suggest if you want to do that through nonviolent means, then you have to uh, use some sort of method. And the method I would refer to would be Marshall Rosenberg's nonviolent communication. I think that's what he calls it, right? Uh, which is a method of recognizing that we communicate to have our needs met and that if you're doing that in such a way where we relate to each other as human beings and we're just trying to get our needs met, there's a much greater chance that you can do that logically, reasonably, and without force, fraud, and aggression. 
if those tools are not provided to us in our school system, then we are constantly confused. We're in a state of anxiety. We don't have a method to deal with uncertainty. We don't have a method to meet and surmount obstacles. And this is the key to mental and physical health. So what you find is it goes from Prussia losing a battle to a new military strategy to a new educational strategy to make military soldiers. And that is what Prussia has built itself upon in the 19th century up to about the time of the American Civil War. Around that time, they are seeking to bring all these uh, little duchies and, uh, you know, places of empire, all these little independent sovereign areas that had worked together in various leagues over the time, uh, mercantile leagues, if you will. Uh, there's some black nobility history there, but we don't have time to get into that. What you find is they are unifying under the philosophies of Hegel and Fichte and Kant and using strategies of Clausewitz to create Prussian nationalism, which then spawns the nation of Germany, which goes about dominating all the way up through the end of World War One. Because in World War One, we're not taught this in school, but when you actually look at the history books, uh, the Allies never set foot on on German soil. It was it was a you know it was a route, and the Germans said, "Hey, we'll stop the war right here and give you back our land, you know, your land, and we'll you know it'll go back to." Uh, uh, anti-bellum, pre-war standards of uh, where the lines were drawn. This brings us up to 1919 and the Paris Peace Treaty, which if you ever look into that, even the official history, the British history of that, written by Margaret Macmillan, who is the great-granddaughter of David Lloyd George, the Prime Minister of Britain during World War One. So this is coming from someone who's a relative who has had access to the personal papers and private archives of all the characters involved uh, in, in putting together not only the war, but the peace treaty, which basically, like I said, if you haven't studied this, redrew the lines of, of multitudes of countries around the world, many of which had nothing to do with World War I. But this opportunity arises, the, this group of, uh, how do you, would you say, rulers and non-elected rulers, because what you find out is, uh, Americans are represented by Woodrow Wilson, but he's handled by a guy named Colonel House, who Brett mentioned in his uh, American Way series. And when you do the research, Colonel House is actually handled by a guy named Samuel Untermeyer, who lived upstairs from him and was later, I believe, a Supreme Court Justice. So there's some really, really deep history and politics going on. And what I thought Brett did such a great job of doing was summarizing and distilling it down and telling you a story that's based on factual history that you can look up and experience and is more interesting than anything that's being put out by Hollywood or any other type of mass media that you're you know, getting on pay cable or any of these other places. And so what it made me re-realize is that it's important to reprioritize our times, to remake our habits in our own image instead of the, the Prussian schooling system that we've inherited. You know, That's the whole point of the story. Where we're all educated in public schools is all coming from the story that Brett tell Brett's telling in this five-hour story of the American way and how Prussian culture became American culture in the 20th century, and now that's what we've inherited and we're trying to untangle in the 21st century. And so, that, well, yeah, that helped, that helps provide context because, like Brett mentions in the series, I mean, the textbooks in a modern public school started in 1939 for the most part. And so what you're missing is a large, you know, contextual history of both the philosophic corruption 
and a uh, you know a, a implement, implementing a system a systemic corruption throughout uh, based on the fact that, uh, that <clears throat> there is no truth that they can go ahead and vent truth that they are our rulers that we need to uh, ascribe to their authority and that they create these systems for you know uh, our, to manage us because we are, can't manage ourselves and uh, they do this essentially by schooling because we did they. Uh, as exemplified uh, in the Battle of Vienna, uh, in fact, the the soldiers were incredible. They were the so they were incredibly unconditioned. Right. And I think what Brett's going to allude to is the nature of that conditioning and what the, what the purpose and function, form and function is. Oh wait, I guess he's back. He's been dropped back off. So the form and function, the reason that they're doing this is. It's crowd control. They want to know how to manipulate people, create interchangeable parts to create people who cannot think for themselves and are dependent on authority. And this is the very foundation of something called collectivism. And the, the idea of collectivism is a sacrifice to a greater authority, a sacrifice to a greater whatever it be. I mean, what I mean, essentially, the idea of moving from socialism to fascism to communism is just a, it's a progression to a greater form of how to manage individuals. That's all it is. I mean, it's individual a, social management systems. Right. And the idea is that with socialism, it's more of an economic model. It moved to a more coercive corporate merging uh, state merging model. Uh, where they controlled more of the economics and more of uh, had more power and influence in media, and uh, especially with control and authority uh, being more explicit. But then moving into communism, that was a completely different game. And Brett makes that explicit in the series, especially in Part Three, where he mentions, you know, it goes from Mussolini, and we see we we mention what happened to Mussolini. Then we go into Hitler, and Hitler uh, that kind of transfers to Stalin. Stalin really pioneered a lot of the methods that we're seeing today. And oftentimes, uh, he mentioned the idea of the gulag. I mean, well, where did these ideas come from? Well, back in, I believe, I can't remember the exact date, in the early 1930s, they had the Enabling Act. And that act essentially is... It's uh, like the Patriot Act. Yeah. And it's history repeating itself. And that's, that's kind of our point here. And that's Brett's point in creating this whole series, is that once you start to study history, not the history that we were taught in school by our predators, because it is our natural predators here on this planet who have created the education system, who have taken over our political system, who have manipulated our economic system, and there is a root cause, there is a way out of this rabbit hole, and that's what we do all the time at TragedyAndHope.com. That's why we are partnered with Corbett Report, and that's why we are trying to spend, you know, it's it's uh, almost 1 a.m. on a Friday night. Why would we be broadcasting out to people that we've never met? That, because we all have human interests. We all have similar things that we have in common that we need that we are being denied, and we are all waking up to the fact that we have natural predators and that, yeah, uh, it, it's not a pleasant thing, but it is reality. And I don't know how else to deal with reality but to observe, identify what's going on, remove the contradictions, and communicate with other people. And that's kind of why James does this five days a week. So in the spirit of raising some money for James tonight and or Brett's projects, I have posted on TragedyAndHope.com the notes for tonight's broadcast, uh, concluding an outline, and there's two banners there. There's one for the Corbett Report RBN coupon code that donates $15 to all things Corbett Report, and there's the same thing I'm offering for Brett. And what you get in return is $140 of value in exchange for $55. It includes the five-hour interview with John Taylor Gatto, known as the Ultimate History Lesson, 
and it is part of what is called a research bonus pack. So it comes with a bunch of other DVDs and a six-month subscription to the Tragedy and Hope online community where, other than doing podcasts and making videos, we are in there every day with 2,000 people from around the world asking questions and trying to find valid answers, learning how to communicate compassionately with each other. And uh, that's why, uh, I guess, James asked us to head up these Friday night broadcasts for the next three weeks. Brett, are you back on the line, and do you have any comments on what you might have heard? I believe I am. Can you hear me okay? I can hear you. Yep. That's awesome. Okay, great. The wonders of uh, technology. Welcome back. <laughs> yeah, I, was, I mean, this yeah, isn't bad. It used to take millions of dollars for people to do true. this, and we're doing this for next to nothing. So shoestring you know, budget I, wins again. Thank you yeah, for persisting. I, I was sitting here, and I was like, what am I going to do about this problem? And I picked up this old phone that I have, and oh I was going to call into the show and do it that way. Oh, that's awesome. Well, you sound yeah, great, so. however you're connected. Yeah, no, I, I really agree. I think this is this is a, a very good synopsis of, um, you know, this whole story and what I covered as well. Um, you know, it's if you can talk about something for, uh, you know, a half an hour, I think that you can often find that it's easier to talk about it for five or six hours. You know right. what I mean? So right. that well, could my been... question to you, be, you know, being uh, sure. uh, in the interest of bringing this show kind of full circle, I left out the story of this character named Philip Drew in this fictional <laughs> tale. I mean, I don't read fiction. I'm not in the novels, but there is this fictional book from 1912, Philip Drew Administrator. I have it in front of me. I have it. I've been a big fan of it for years because it seems to be uh, not a prophecy so much as a business plan. What can you tell us about? Philip Drew, Administrator. Yeah, absolutely. This was a book that was written by Colonel Edward House, and this was his fantasy. I believe it was written at the very beginning of the Woodrow Wilson administration, and House is, as you mentioned, this in-the-shadows advisor. Like, the more I learned about House, I almost felt bad for being so critical of Wilson in the past, because he seems just like this He's a kind of... Um, well, yeah, but he, he seems like this naive intellectual who's just being led around and told what is progressive and good and the direction in which the world needs to go. And it's funny, just to go all the way back to Hegel for a minute, you know, I, we, we think about Hegel, I, I think a lot of people talk about the dialectic as if it was like this evil conspiracy. Now, it did become, you know, sort of an owner's manual for human civilization, but I think that it, it's possible that Hegel did want to develop his own system of having a fuller understanding of how things happen and why. But it seems like so often what philosophers leave out of their thinking, of their entire body of work, is the psychology of power. And House exemplifies that. Now, House's book, Philip Drew Administrator, is this story, this this fantasy that he has about this man who basically takes over the world and uh, what are the things that he does? He sets up a central bank in the United States. I think this was written in 1912. Um, sets up a central bank, uh, devises an income tax, and forms a League of Nations. That was the, the big one, two, three uh, of his uh, agenda. And, of course, all of those things happened during the Wilson administration. The League of Nations ultimately didn't play out the way House wanted to. He quickly went back to work and was one of the founding members of the Council on Foreign Relations, I think, in 19, early 1920s, 1923, maybe. And, uh, yeah, so it's interesting to see um, 
he put it out there, you know, even if it just seemed like a, a fantasy book published under another name that nobody at the time, uh, nobody, maybe even up until recently, would have taken seriously. Well, it seems to me now, I was having a live realization and I had to restrain myself from interrupting you, but it seems to me, knowing that House's father uh, was a mercantile, uh, you know, he's in the mercantile trade who had connections to the Rothschild banking family, so House was second generation at least in this uh, financial intelligentsia, if you will. And what I notice is uh, Philip Drew Administrator, written in 1912, is almost like the exit briefing from the Jekyll Island meetings, right? And so now that we're putting it together, you've got Jekyll Island, then you've got Philip Drew, then you got the Federal Reserve, then you got World War I, and then you've got the Paris Peace Treaty, of which House is super instrumental because he's he's a tool, again, None of these characters are, like you say, it's like, you know, Hegel, Hegel gets a bad rap, but what was he studying? He was studying patterns in history. He gave it a name. That name stuck. A bunch of people who are organized and have a lot of office supplies and are evil have used that against <laughs> right. us. And by evil, I just simply mean irrational. They lack cause and effect reality, which everyone else that I know has to live in and is subject to because we're all real people trying to struggle and figure out what's going on. Other people who are removed from reality and have enough money where everyone just says yes to them because they want some of the money. And, and again, that's that goes back to your comment on the origins of power and how we, you know, instead of trying to disprove or debunk or defame any of these people, we should be trying to discover w what is the corruption that, that still plagues us. And when you look at who's in control, you really find there's no one in control. You, you talk, well, we are about to go to break. And in the last couple minutes, we're going to talk about who or what is actually in control of this whole mess and what we can do about it going forward. We'll be right back. Another promise, another scene, another a package like to keep us trapped in greed. All a green belt wrapped around our minds, an endless red tape to keep the truth confined. Welcome back to Corbett Report. This is our closing segment where we summarize everything and try to make it make sense for you. Uh, aside from Hegel, who has gotten a bad reputation through time, there's another guy named Machiavelli. And what Machiavelli's book was about was political opportunism. Political opportunism had always existed, but it took Machiavelli to publicize it in book form. But those of us who can read and are on this side of the fence... We are grateful to know that these strategies exist, that these conspiracies are real, that there is history, and it's all very juicy. Brett, how would you summarize, in your terms, maybe in a minute, who's in control of everything that we see beyond you know, what we're taught in school? Well, you know, I think what was interesting in Germany, and I think this uh, really applies to the world when you think about it, is no one. You know, I, I think that... Um, if you think about it like a pyramid, I know that's that's some uh, imagery that is often employed to describe. Uh, yeah, we're not being esoteric. You're just saying sure. picture something that's hierarchical and in, in, in like uh, like they have with uh, royalty. Sure. So as you go up or as you go up to the top, uh, people decrease and knowledge increases, and I think also the desire to control people increases. And as you go down to the bottom. Knowledge decreases and people increase. So, you know, it takes very few people to actually know what's going on to make a lot of the things uh, that we see happening actually happen. Most people, I think, are motivated by uh, good intentions. And if they're told that something is virtuous or, you know, it's um, and, and this is where we can see things like nationalism being used, uh, they'll do it. 
you know, that's, uh, that's how most people, I believe, operate. And it's very, it's very few people. And I've never in my show talked about who I think they are. I, I don't know. <laughs> you know who the people. Well, that was that was it was almost a rig question because I asked you who, and uh, my, the answer I had in mind was it's not a who, it's a philosophic corruption of reality that has been adopted sure. by the school system, perpetuated by politics and media. Yeah. And uh, I guess what I want to put on record before we get too far into this segment would be, uh, since people are interested, and this is a fascinating topic, where can people m- learn more about what you do? Uh, SchoolSucksProject.com is my website. We also have a. YouTube channel. You can just search uh, School Sucks Podcast. And also find us on uh, Facebook. we got a pretty good group over there. If you're into Facebook, um, it's uh, School Sucks Podcast. You search that and you'll find us. Now, I came across School Sucks Podcast not because I'm in school and I think it sucks, but because I'm an adult trying to fill in my blind spots and, and trying to educate myself in an autodidactic form where I'm not being led by some uh, teacher with an agenda who's funded by the Rockefeller Foundation, because when you get into the origins of uh, schooling, uh, for instance, in the ultimate history lesson, you understand that these uh, the small elite, the ruling elite, uh, and there's the, the sociology of the elites written in 1897 by, I think it's uh, Gaetano Mosca or Vilfredo Pareto. Don't quote me on that. But the point is, these, these groups exist. There's books written about them going back hundreds of years that are very credible and academic, and that this is so much more interesting than anything that they're putting on TV. So if I can encourage you to do anything after listening tonight beyond starting to look into this, looking into the notes and references and exploring on your own, uh, it would be to reprioritize some of your habitual time to do it on a more regular basis. And if you're already doing that, then you're already, you know, you're already winning the battle because the change that needs to be made out there is a change we're all making inside learning how to use our minds for ourselves, learning how to discipline ourselves instead of being disciplined by so-called authorities. So, for uh, Brett Bonat and Tony Myers, I am Richard Grove, signing off from Corbett Report Radio, broadcasted from Tragedy and Hope Studios in Connecticut. Thank you for tuning in and not dropping out. Good night.